Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today, we're going to talk about Europe. But not the Europe that many of us think about when we're planning our August getaways. There is the Europe of the museums and the beaches, the one that keeps the tourists coming back to Paris and Florence and Mykonos. And then there is the real Europe, as lived by its people. And that Europe has changed dramatically in recent decades. The end of the Cold War collapsed many of the continent's political barriers. European unification brought countries as diverse as Ireland and Bulgaria under one umbrella. And more recently, a boom in migration, especially from the Islamic world, has changed Europe's demographics and brought a host of opportunities, challenges, and political changes. Today, the war in Ukraine has both created more solidarity among European nations and highlighted their big differences, and it has rattled the foundation of the region's economy. So today, we're going to talk about why this history means that you probably need to update your assumptions about Europe, and why it is that many American policymakers simply don't understand the realities that leaders like Emmanuel Macron, Rishi Sunak, and Georgia Maloney have to live with. My guest today to guide us through the new Europe is Ben Judah. Ben's new book, which is an indispensable guide to understanding the continent in 2023, is called This is Europe. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Ben Judah is a journalist and a scholar and has interviewed the likes of Rishi Sunak, Emmanuel Macron, and Melania Trump. One of his earlier books, This is London, chronicled how Britain's capital has transformed into a global hub that far exceeds anything that Disraeli or Churchill might have imagined. In This is Europe, Ben applies the same treatment to the entire continent. In it, he tells the stories of 23 people across a range of ages, geographies, and classes. It's a very literary, on-the-ground account of how the definition of Europe and its people has been set adrift by globalism and large influxes of new people, and what all that means for the future of Western democracies. Some of the topics will be familiar to Americans, immigration, crime, and the rise of right-wing populism. But according to Ben, the implications for Europe are quite different from those here in the States, and they open up a whole tin of worms for the broader notion of the Western alliance. So what exactly is Europe? Ben is going to explain. Let's talk a little bit about what Europe is right now, Ben. And maybe we can start with sort of a game of, <laughs> of mention some countries. Are they in Europe? Are they out of Europe? And why? The UK, in or out? Well, one of the things about this book is that it includes stories from Russia. There's a story of a Russian gas worker right up in the Arctic, drilling down to kind of bring that energy for Europe. There's a story from Istanbul, and there are stories that take place in Britain. And I deliberately chose that wider Europe because I think that there are several different Europes. There's the Europe of politics, and that's the Europe of Mario Draghi and the ECB and the Euro and Emmanuel Macron. It's the Europe of political Europe, actually. And I felt that was very well covered. 
Then there's the Europe of the mind. And the Europe of the mind is what we think when we book a holiday in Italy. And that's full of stained glass windows and half-remembered bits of kind of De Sica movies from the 1970s and, you know, old documentaries about kind of London or, or, or Paris. And that Europe of the mind and that Europe of politics are growing increasingly distant from the Europe we actually live in. So the idea to take the big Europe and to take all these very, very different people that, you know, would never be sort of interviewed politically, they're all just sort of basically normal people, was the idea to show people that the Europe we actually live in has changed so much and is changing incredibly rapidly. So why did I include Britain and Turkey and Russia? Well, they might not be in the Europe of politics, but they're definitely in the lived Europe and they're definitely in the, the Europe of the mind. And I put them there because, and this way is, you know, one of the things that Americans are incredibly good about knowing about themselves and thinking about themselves is that Americans don't just talk about America in the past tense. America is also a destiny. It's a community of destiny. It's an idea of the future. Being an American is actually being part of that future. And Europeans tend not to think about that. Europeans tend to think about Europe as being sort of miniers and, and castles and, you know, sort of heritage. But that's not true. Europe is also all of these countries and people that are tied together and sort of share a common destiny sort of despite themselves. And one of the reasons that Britain and Turkey are European is because, you know, Britain might have more in common with Australia culturally, linguistically, you know, share the royal family, for, at least for the moment. And But Australia doesn't share a destiny with Britain because mm. of geography. Australia's destiny is Asian or Pacific or probably both. And Britain's destiny, whether it sort of likes it or not, is actually tied together with France and Germany and, and Belgium. And the same goes for Turkey and Russia, which means that even when we go back to the 18th century, when we see these philosophers were drawing up plans, they weren't very successful, I'm afraid, for like perpetual peace in Europe, they always included Russia and, and Turkey. And mm. whether or not it's a destiny that we fight over, it's a future that we're contesting right now, whether Europe's going to be safe for democracy or safe for authoritarianism, I do think that Russia and Turkey are part of that, that Europe as a destiny, as a future, even if they're not part of the Europe of politics right now, you know, as a sort of airless room in Brussels where people are sort of deciding things to do with the currency. Yeah. One takeaway from the book is that what we ignore when we think of Europe as a museum, and especially as an American and you visit Europe strictly as a holiday destination, which I'm certainly guilty of, is that you miss that the beating heart of Europe in some ways are the blue-collar immigrants from the East and from the Islamic world. Would you go as far to say that? Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the spirits that went into writing this book. So I'm going to throw a few numbers uh, around that, which I think that Americans will kind of be surprised to know, which is the foreign-born population of Germany, 16%, is actually higher mm. than the foreign-born population, according to the census of the United States. Like Ireland, Americans think of that you know, many of them, is the land of their own ancestry. Think of it as a country of emigration. Ireland's now 18% foreign-born. Like, Europe is becoming and has become an immigrant continent. And that means that, you know, the very culture and fabric of it is different. Let's look at France. You know, France, I think Americans think of France, sort of the France of the 50s, the France of kind yeah. of GI brides. And that was a country that was 0.5% Muslim in 1950. Well, now it's about 10%. And you just got to 
open your eyes and realize this is a new continent. It's been as transformed by immigration, if not more, and I would argue more than the United States in the last few decades. If you look at Germany, German government says that 17% of its population, you know, has uh, migrated there since 1950. The discrepancy between those two statistics, I think, is to do with East Germany. And, you know, this is a kind of a new place. It's a new continent. And, you know, I really wanted to kind of shape people and to show them which is, you know, you, if you look inside every kitchen, if you look at who's driving every bus and every subway carriage, you'll see a new Europe, which is the Europe of the future, and also a Europe that we don't, we don't kind of think about when we talk about, we think about that Europe of the mind that I was talking about, and that I can tell you, a lot of the people in the Europe of politics don't think about either, and that change is accelerating. I wanted to stick with one point you made there: is comparing the experience of immigration in the United States and in Europe, how are they the same and how are they different? Well, let's just take Ireland, for example. Like Ireland was a land of emigration. There have, of course, been immigration, uh, most of it forced and unwelcome as part of the British plantation and colonialism. But broadly, you know, Irish towns and cities in the mid-late 20th century were not experiencing immigration. That was not how people conceptualized of the country. You know, the Republic was largely a sort of mono-ethnic, you know, close to mono-religious country, though not completely, by the 1970s. And today, Ireland's 18% foreign-born. That's a huge transformation. You go to Cork, and the place looks a little bit like London. You go to kind of Galway, the place, again, will look a little bit like, you know, like, like London. And that's different from America, because America is the whole nature of America is layer and layer and layer and layer of constantly arriving new new immigrants. Immigration is part of the the fabric and always has been of America. But in Europe, that's a, a new experience. You know, France and you know Germany had really conceptualised themselves as you know throughout the nineteenth century and the early twentieth centuries. Even though there was immigration, they'd thought of themselves as nation states that were countries of emigration. So the experience of immigration has come as a real is a real transformation and for a lot of people in Europe, a real shock, which is why Europe's politics is trending the way it is. Let's talk about that a little bit. What we're seeing in France on the streets, the clashes between immigrants and police, this is something that, frankly, if you're you know in Washington, obsessed with politics the way that a lot of the audience for this podcast is, that you're watching sort of out of the corner of your eye, what's the way to understand what's going on there? Well, one of the ways to understand what's going on there is this mismatch between the Europe of politics and the Europe in which, you know, French people actually live. And that Europe of politics, and in France, that's the Europe of the politics of the police, you mm. know, it's still a, you know, white French police force that doesn't reflect in terms of its recruitment, uh, this you know, multiracial population of the suburbs of major French cities, which are these sort of underprivileged, uh, unlike in the United States, these kind of underprivileged, kind of gritty, gritty neighborhoods. And I think that that's really key to understand. You have some countries that are further along in understanding themselves as immigrant societies and in kind of making sure that that immigrant population and you know, second or third generation population, which aren't immigrants anymore, they're just British or French or German, is integrated into its institutions on all level, like the police, and some that aren't, and France isn't. 
So quite similar to some of the situations we've had in the United States with all white police forces policing non-white neighborhoods with pretty predictable consequences. Yes. And also in the case of the French police, increasingly violent police force. I think it's important for Americans not to romanticize Europe. And a lot of what the book is trying to do is mm. show you actually behind the veil like what's what Europe is really like. And you know, how different European countries are from each other. Like the last person killed for resisting police custody in Germany, about 10 years ago, in France, 17 people have been shot by traffic cops in the last 18 months. Like, wow. you know, and that's, like in some ways, kind of, you know, that's definitely not the politics of a museum. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. This conversation about immigration and New Europe and Old Europe, often an issue that comes up is birth rates and the birth rates between new immigrant populations and native Europeans. What's your view of that and how to think about that? I think it's very important to remember that, you know, once people are born in a society and live in a society, they're part of that society. And these kind of slightly sinister projections of birth rates that show, you know, some of them might show 40% of the British population being of non-traditional British heritage. By mm, that's, that's how it's described. Well, that's how some people might describe yeah. it. I think that there are, that's how some kind yeah. of people on some kind of weird... Probably people yeah. on the For You tab on Twitter might describe it that way. Um, they are, <laughs> it, you know, I think that that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. Like, I've got kind of immigrant heritage on kind of my father's side. You know, one of my grandfathers was a Middle Eastern heritage. My other grandmother was a Holocaust refugee, you know, born in born Berlin. But the idea that I'm not British or should be counted in that category... I Anyone who knows you knows you're very British. Well, thank you. I think I think there might actually be a little little, little flag actually here on my mantelpiece. I think is um I think that's kind of sinister and uh, and creepy and kind of ignores you know how people actually live. And one of the things that's happening right now in especially in Britain but also all over Europe is incredible mixing. You know, there's at a far higher rate than people expected or that people know about and really if you want to see the future of europe you should come to london and london really you know since the time of shakespeare has been europe's city of the future and london is if you know britain's not the most successful place economically right now in europe london is still you know i think europe's most successful city culturally that city of an absolutely enormous foreign-born population that works that clicks and which is producing a weird, strange, beautiful culture, all its own, that's incredibly British and young, but has, you know, the influences of all over all over the world. And one way to really see that is how sort of old, sort of, you know, 
crime movie sort of cockney cockney accents have sort of faded away and been replaced by an incredibly kind of vibrant new london slang that's a bit of old cockney but it's also got some jamaican and west african and pakistani and that's you know that's change and that's the europe of the future it's both itself and completely different in the way it's going to use an orwell metaphor like orwell think said that what have I got in common with a picture of me as a child on the, my mother's mantelpiece and who I am now? Well, nothing apart from I'm the same person. And that's the way to kind of look at the London of today and the London of 50, 60 years ago. It's completely different, but it's still the same place. Well, one question about that is in the United States, we have these two strains when it comes to immigration. You know, in our, our, our self-identity is all about the melting pot and welcoming immigrants, of course. At the same time, just as prevalent is a history of uh, demagoguing immigrants, making them less than equal uh, citizens. And you know you see this from the beginning to the most recent chapters of American history. Are there parts of Europe that have that first piece of it, that self-identity of being welcoming? Or is that still a uniquely American idea? And, and which countries are doing better at sort of turning the immigrant story that is is causing lots of disruption in Europe into something that is more positive and something that they want to advertise. Because part of that, what you're talking about is how people don't think of you, you know, people still think of Europe as the museum. That's still the that, that's still the image it projects to the world, of course. And I mean, maybe that has more to do with economics and tourism than anything else. But what countries are have a similar... Uh, self-identity to the United States? Well, I think kind of Britain, Ireland, and Germany are maybe more like that. I think France, increasingly Scandinavia, and Italy are less like that. And one of the things we're seeing in Europe right now is a shift to the right because of immigration pressure and the shock of immigration coming in. Like people, you know, a million asylum seekers entered the EU, Switzerland, and Norway uh, last year, so almost a million as- asylum seekers. And that's on top of 4 million Ukrainians that sought safety in the same area in the same year. So there's really you know, incredible movement going on in Europe right now. So one of the spirits that the book was written against is a sort of paranoia you get in Europe right now, especially uh, amongst far-right parties that have come to power in Italy, that are hugely influential in Scandinavia, that are rising in Spain, that were, of course, influential behind Brexit, is this idea that all of Europe's immigrants are sort of the same thing, that there is just this percentage that's ticking up and it's all green and that you know they're all they're all the same one of the reasons yeah. that i wrote the book in this way is that we have four portraits of four different muslim men in the in the book and i wanted to show how each of them had gone to a very different destiny we have a syrian refugee in berlin that is delivering packages for Amazon. He's completely traumatized by what he's lived through. He's just buzzing on doors. People are saying, Dankeschön, as he delivers them like a packet of toothpaste or something. And all he wants to do is get out of Germany because his wife's incredibly depressed and he thinks it will be better for her if they get to Dubai because he thinks the city's half criminalized. It's not even really German anymore. He's got to get out. Then we see Berlin all over again from the point of view of a gay Syrian refugee who becomes a queer dancer that starts performing drag. And for him, Berlin is just freedom. Berlin is joy. Berlin is everything he could have ever hoped for. 
Then we see Europe from the point of view of a young man who from Tunisia, he grows up in the south of France near the old papal city of Avignon and sort of against his father's wishes and against the wishes of his native French wife, he becomes an imam and goes on a whole journey towards faith. That's one destiny in Europe. And then we have Europe seen through the eyes of a Syrian refugee in Germany who wants to be an actor can't become an actor and then decides, okay, I'm going to try and make it in porn and goes on this adventure through the internet trying to become a porn star. And what I wanted to show is, yes, Europe's becoming more Muslim, but they're not all the same. It's not like a sort of green army or like a green blob in a, in a pie chart. It's an incredibly variegated human experience where there's assimilation, integration, ghettoization, but also transformation. And that's because I think that one of the things that we don't see in Europe is how Europe represents freedom. And Americans know that America represents freedom. It's, you know, 4th of July has just gone past. That's in the American DNA. I don't think that we really get it in sort of old Britain and old France and old Germany, how the continent represents freedom for two kinds of people. It represents freedom for people coming from the South. There's this huge quest for freedom from people leaving West Africa and the Middle East, risking everything on dinghies, trying to get across the Mediterranean that's reshaping the continent. And then it represents freedom for all of those people fighting in Ukraine or failing in their attempts to have revolutions in Belarus. And that's one of the chapters in the books. I think Europe's being remade right now by these two great quests for freedom. And I, I got it. I really <laughs> clicked it in this moment when I was trying to do the travel book sort of version of the book and I kind of threw it away. But I found myself, I felt, if I'm going to write about this migrant experience, I've got to do it myself. I've got to do at least part of the journey myself. So I joined a group of African migrants that were trying to cross the Alps into France because they didn't want to stay as asylum seekers in Italy. The roads were blocked, the trains were blocked, the buses were blocked. The only way they could get into France was by crossing the Alps through the passes of Hannibal and... Um, and Napoleon in the middle of the snow, in the middle of the night. And I was kind of crossing with them. And at one point, a guy turns around to me and kind of taps me on, on, on my shoulder and goes, mon frère, my brother, can you just take my daughter? Because I can't go on anymore. And he puts his five-year-old daughter on my shoulders. And I found myself in this pass thinking, oh my God, shit, I could get busted for people smuggling. Because that's literally what I'm doing if the French police find us. And I looked behind me and I saw all of these, this line of, of men, but there were also families and there were also women just trying, risking everything to get into France, which for them represented freedom, the future, everything. And I was reminded, actually, of the moment the German philosopher Hegel saw Napoleon leave Jena, this German university town, out to on reconnaissance for the battlefield. And Hegel wrote to one of his friends, I saw the world spirit on horseback. I saw history mm. itself in the personality of Napoleon just, just ride out on reconnaissance in front of me. And I thought... Shit, I've got the spirit of history on my shoulders. The spirit of history right now in Europe is this quest for freedom coming from the South and this battle for freedom that's raging in Eastern Europe. And that's what's remaking our continent. That's incredible. Do you ever have any sympathy for the argument that um, there's a contradiction in those battles for freedom in that this immigration explosion is undoubtedly being used by right-wing politicians across Europe, um, and that the fear that 
the pro-democracy camp has of autocrats coming to power in Europe, the fuel that fires them are those very same immigrants that grow on your shoulder. Exactly the same as we're seeing in the United States, the way that the immigration issue is used. Even as someone who's sympathetic to that yearning for freedom, how do you, how do you view that argument and that tension between those things? Well, you know, I'm lucky that I'm not a politician and I don't understand <laughs> that there's no contradiction yeah. here. But like, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to be honest and to make sure that everybody's humanity was represented. And yeah. it's Which, obviously and you true. Su- and you succeeded. And I, I hope listeners buy the book because... You, you truly succeeded, and you're, you're, the um, empathy with which you draw these characters is thrilling, actually, to read and to see these characters drawn with such sensitivity, but also with stories that are gripping and, and keep you going. So sorry to interrupt. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, no, you can continue. Um, well, I think it's really important to be honest that, yes, immigration is turning Europe into a new place. It's a new continent. And I think that a lot of people in the sort of liberal camp have sort of been in denial about that and not wanting to talk about that. And a lot of what the book is about is showing that, yes, that's true. And I think, you know, I wanted to also capture in the book, you know, what, what's it like to live in rural Portugal as you see the disintegration of the old hold of the Catholic Church and the abandonment of the villages? What's that old Europe look like? How does that feel as you see the continent, the yeah. continent changing? So that's also there. And then I also wanted to write it, I think I also want people on the right to realize these aren't just numbers of people who are coming in. You know, these are actual human beings, each of them a whole world that are on each of those sort of dinghies and boats that are leading to deaths almost daily or weekly in the in the Mediterranean. So the book's trying to kind of kind of shake people and yeah. show them this is the way we live now in all of its complexities and contradictions. You know, you do a, a great job of sympathetically portraying the different emotions that immigration causes in people and why they are attracted to uh, the right or the left because of what they're, what they're seeing. Uh, you don't come away from the book with any easy answers to some of these issues, which I would say if there's one frustration I had reading it, it it's <laughs> that. I wanted you to solve these problems for me. Well, I'll tell you something that you know, come back to something you asked me earlier. You went, oh yeah, I think of you as sort of think tank guy. That, that's true. I am a think tank guy. I work at the Atlantic Council. And people go, we're so used to you telling us all day, <laughs> nonstop on Twitter, what you think about Macron. Why, how could you write a whole book about Europe without your views? Exactly. You, I was trying and, to get at that question politely. <laughs> well, it's all in the subtitle, The Way We Live Now. And I think that people in think tanks can very easily forget that at their basis, the great political philosophies, liberalism, socialism, conservatism, they're all moral questions about how should we live? Is this the way we should live? How should we live together? And every person in the book is asking themselves, is this the way we want to live now? And I actually think that's incredibly political. It's not policy. Policy is like trying to work out sort of little sort of funding techniques and stuff to kind of solve a problem. I think that the questions they're asking themselves are incredibly political. Do we want to live this way? Is this the way we want to live in in Europe? And whether you're a kind of Syrian porn star or you're a, a Russian gas worker or whether you're a shepherd in Portugal, all of the people in the book are 
trying to ask themselves that. Is this the way we want to live with climate change and technology and mass immigration and, you know, completely crazy supply chains? Is this the way we want to live? And I think that's actually really political. It's not easy, but it's political. I want to end with a very Politico question. I like how you talked about, you know, the Europe of Politico and how you distinguish it from what you're writing about. But just a little bit on the U.S.-European relationship. This is not something that's specifically addressed in the book. But going from Trump to Biden these last few years, what are the biggest changes that you've seen? And will the predictions during the Trump era that the United States is an unreliable partner and, you know, you sort of got to find different friends. As, is that still in the, in the ether in Europe or has that been put to rest or does his possible comeback, uh, uh, you know, bring that back into the conversation? But I'm trying to get at, give me your analysis of the whiplash between Trump and Biden and what it means going forward. Well, I think it depends where you sit in Europe. In Northern and Eastern Europe, there's sense of relief that America's back. They kind of believe the Biden narrative that the US is here to stay and they want to say whatever they can to make sure the Americans keep helping them to keep Russia at bay in Ukraine. In the sort of Carolingian core of old Europe, to sort of reference Charlemagne's uh, empire in France and Germany, there is actually a, a bit more skepticism in which a lot of intellectual work suggesting that America is actually becoming very erratic with like these sudden lurches between left and right leading to sudden lurches in foreign policy is a bit more advanced. And Macron has really tried to put on the table a lot of ideas about how Europe can sort of arm itself better and protect itself better and do that without the United States. The trouble is that because he sort of led the negotiations camp with Russia in the run-up to the war and didn't lead, in the eyes of Northern and Southern Europeans, the sort of defend Europe camp, that his voice has sort of, uh, is not being li as listened to as much as I think it should be. And I think that uh, you know, one of the things we're going to see in Europe over the next few decades is Europeans getting reminded each time a party that they don't like takes the White House, that they should have done more to make Europe more autonomous whilst their friends were, were in power. And I think that there will be a bit of a shock, maybe not next, this time, but definitely definitely next time, and people will be asking, you know, why didn't we do more to build up sort of European defence or autonomy, given that I don't think the United States has that like deep consensus around foreign policy that it had in no, the Cold War. No, for sure. <laughs> not around anything, but certainly not foreign policy. I, I mean, you, you can see that, of course, with the number of Republicans that are extremely skeptical of the war in Ukraine for no other reason than it has to be bad because Biden is so in favor of uh, defending the Ukrainians. Ben, thank you for doing this. Thank you. This will sound crazy to some people because the title of the book is This is Europe, but this is a book I would recommend people take to the beach this summer. You will become wrapped up in these 23 characters' lives and the events that they go through, and you can just open it up anywhere, pick a chapter, and you will be you know, dropped in the middle of a fascinating tale. Um, 
I was skeptical when I first opened it and reading it, and I was like, what is this? What is this style? What is this about? <laughs> but um, I found it so absorbing and addictive, and you know, just con congratulations. I hope it gets more oh, attention here in the US. And so it's a privilege to sort of find a book like that that um, this audience might not know about but should check out. So thank you for doing this, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. that's our show. And before we go, a big announcement. Politico has a new podcast. Politico Tech is your daily download on the disruption that technology is bringing to politics and policy. Today, Stephen Overly interviews Justine Bateman, a Hollywood writer and filmmaker, about why she thinks AI presents an existential threat to entertainment. You can find Politico Tech wherever you get your podcasts. And personally, as a huge fan of Family Ties when I was a kid, I am very excited to listen to that one. Now back to the credits. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thanks to Joe Dobkin for the editing help this week. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>